We've been singing about a God who reigns forevermore. Even over moments like that, those things happen. Our God reigns forevermore. And that's what we're going to talk about in the book of Acts this morning. If you turn there to Luke's sequel. Uh, today's sermon is entitled, The King's Rule. I'm uh, grateful for the uh, invitation to preach. In part because even as an outsider, uh, I've been well aware for years of the sterling reputation of this church concerning missions. And so, uh, while it's always a joy to open the Word of God, uh, to open this passage on mission in Acts 1 uh, to this group of people, men and women who've uh, demonstrated their belief in it, is a true joy this morning. So thank you for letting me be here. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Hear the Word of God. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is the word of our king, the one who reigns. Now, a question to begin our study. What description of those being ruled most honors the one ruling? Or said another way, what characteristics of those submitting would most honor the one being submitted to? Because everyone submits to someone, and of course, we start pretty early, Before we can spell obey, we're going to bed when mom and dad say. Now, of course, submission looks all kinds of ways, doesn't it? I mean, the baby might be in their crib. That doesn't mean he or she went there uh, without a fight. Or a few years later, outwardly, the teenager nails that curfew perfectly, outwardly submits. But I've learned that you can roll your eyes with a straight face. And of course, uh, this mere outward submission is true in the workplace, isn't it? And that directive makes its way right into your inbox, and you do it, but that doesn't mean necessarily you do it gladly. This mere outward submission often happens, too, when humanity is submitting to governments. I remember years ago, flying over the Atlantic, a long flight, uh, beside a man from Iran, and he spent hours and hours of that long flight telling me how much the Iranians could not stand the Ayatollah. Seemingly, that man rules over a lot of people. Millions submitted to Chairman Mao too. But seeming power doesn't necessarily mean honor, does it? What demonstrates more power? Someone bending the knee or subjects? Gladly bowing their heart. Further, of those gladly bowing their heart, what would bring more honor to the one being bowed to? Is it people from one period of time, from one zip code, those with scores of shared human characteristics, or is it glad submission from a hundred eras, from a host of places? And from an abundance of languages, wouldn't that group's unity, having nothing else in common, bring more honor to the one who united them? Maybe we suppress it, but all of us long for good rulers, 
those we can trust, those who do what's just, and a community of people to live together with under that kind of gracious but righteous authority. We wish it were true in our families. We wish it were true in our workplaces. Maybe we wish it were true in our communities. Most deeply, I would say, we long for it in human history. Who is it that's ruling? Who is bringing everything about? To whom does history itself bow? You see, when the scriptures, the things we've been singing about, when the scriptures talk about the kingdom of God, it's not mere theological chatter. It's not... uh, Who cares, abstract, prognosticating, no, it's discussing something. We've been singing about something that you deeply long for. In our passage today, Acts 1 speaks directly to this kingdom of God. Note first, the 11 disciples, they ask a question. Verse 6, so when they had come together, They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That word, so, is far from inconsequential. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, is explicit. He's connecting the question the disciples ask with what's happened in the first five verses of the book. Now, verse 3 of Acts 1 tells us that Jesus had appeared to the disciples, and he was talking about something. He was speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, what's new? He talked about that topic repeatedly. Now we're told he's continuing to discuss it even after the resurrection. Now, Luke doesn't tell us everything that Jesus said about the kingdom, but but look at your Bibles. Acts 1, verses 4 and 5 do record a couple points he made. He ordered them, Jesus did, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Then verse 6, so. You see why it's important? It's connecting the question of verse 6 to what's preceded it. Jesus had been talking to them about this kingdom. He'd been talking to them about the Holy Spirit. He'd related the two topics to one another. Now, maybe you'd say, what does the Holy Spirit have to do with the kingdom of God? Well, that's a great question, and it's a question this text in the book of Acts answers. Now, I know your time is precious. Why take a paragraph to say all that? Well, to say that the disciples' question Uh, itself is not entirely a bad one. You know, in the understanding of most Jewish men and women, this outpouring of the Spirit Jesus spoke about was connected to significant promises. And further, keep in mind that these Jewish men and women uh, were under the thumb of pagan Roman rulers like Pontius Pilate and Herod Antipas. And so day after day, these men and women of faith were marginalized in and by their culture. They didn't submit necessarily gladly all the time. Day after day, they're they're longing for deliverance. Now, if you were being oppressed like that, and a resurrected man came to you and was talking about the kingdom of God, (laughs) the soon coming of the Holy Spirit, you might ask, Are we there yet? 
It's kind of what the 11 ask here. Verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? See, it's not entirely a bad question. Note secondly, in part, it's the wrong question. One year, a number of years ago, we've been teaching our kids about the seasons and uh, the changing of the seasons. It was probably the middle of the summer, and they were dying to know in Memphis, when is this going to change? When's fall happening? And so we marked it on the calendar. Here's the first day of fall, kids. And on that day, I remember one of the kids uh, just taking off toward the window, looking out, and then uh, come running back to us like we'd betrayed them and said, it's not fall. The leaves are still on the trees. Now, what happened? There? He, the idea was right. The timing may be a bit off. Well, that's what Jesus' response to the disciples indicates in verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now note here, he doesn't say, will you at this time? No, I won't. He doesn't say that. The question is wrong in part, not in totality. And like many in our day, what they long to know? They long to know the chronological details. The, the word for times here is in fact the word Chronos, where we get our term chronology. They're asking, how many more hours? Uh, what time is it? Jesus replies, verse 7, it is not for you to know. The grammar gives us a degree of insight into what Jesus means here. He, he uses what we might call a possessive pronoun for you. In other words, this knowledge is not for you to possess. It's not for you to own. It's not your right, your privilege, your prerogative. Whose right is it? Verse 7 continues. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. The Father has fixed the time. He's the one who owns that knowledge. And maybe you can see yourself here in the sandals of the disciples, sometimes obsessed with the secret will of God. I, mean, I think often we're paying little attention to his revealed will, things that we've not deserved to know or hear. At the same time, while we're ignoring our New Testament, we're dying to figure out something that we can't possibly know. Now, it's not just the guys making their charts or sharing memes, speculating on this or that event. It can also be us obsessing over the Lord's will and this or that particular with our career, with our family, with our future, with the world. The disciples were not going to possess, Jesus says, knowledge concerning the chronological details of Israel's restoration. The Father made the clock. He sets it. He winds it, verse 7 says, by his own authority, and nothing is ever a second late. At this time is the main issue with the 11th question. So Jesus, he corrects that aspect. In part, it's the wrong question. But note third, in part, it's the right question. And Jesus will answer their question, but what he's going to do is he's, he shifts the disciples' expectation from, from when to how. Now, the first word of verse 8 is a, is a strong word of contrast. When, when Luke writes, but, he means to say, you can't expect that, but you should expect this. Okay, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
Now, what I'm submitting here is that Jesus actually answers their question. He's not just being dismissive, you know, listening to them and then just talking about whatever he wants. He's not merely rebuking them. Yes, he's, he's correcting the nuance of their question, but he's not pivoting entirely or, or changing the topic. Now, they certainly have these overly nationalistic underpinnings to what they mean by restore. But what Jesus details in verse 8 absolutely has to do with restoration. And it absolutely has to do with the kingdom of God. So Jesus says to the disciples, your expectations concern the win of the kingdom, but let's talk about the how. Verse 8, you will receive power. Now, he'd already told them this at least twice uh, to wait on this power. There's a cliffhanger at the end of Luke's gospel. He says, behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So they're waiting, they're waking up. It's just the day. Stay in the city until this. Then Acts 1.5, Jesus says, the wait's not going to be much longer. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Again, no wonder they ask, is it time? So they're waiting on this promised power. Now, what's this power for? What is it that they cannot do on their own? Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. That's what this power is for. And this term for witness is not too different from the way we use it in, in our day. One New Testament scholar writes that a witness is a person who testifies in legal matters. We're familiar with that. A number of years ago, I was teaching at a retirement home not too far from here. And I'd arrived a few minutes early, and I'm sitting in my car looking at my notes. And as I'm sitting in this parking lot that, that faced a road in front of me, a car comes around the corner flying. And when I say flying, I don't mean metaphorically. I mean it is in the air. And when it comes down, it goes through a wooden fence in someone's backyard. Okay, I'm sitting there watching this. Then the driver's side door opens up and a guy gets out of the car and he runs off. <laughs> and I'm looking around hoping that someone important saw this happen. It's just me. <laughs> so I've got a few uh, pre-sermon minutes. So I call the police and right or wrong, I, I carefully drive into this neighborhood that he ran into and with MPD on the line, I pull into the neighborhood and a guy roughly the size of a Chevy Tahoe had that escapee pinned and handcuffed. Apparently, this linebacker led, led their neighborhood watch efforts. <laughs> uh, so uh, what happens then? Well, the police show up and we tell them what we saw. That's being a witness. See, Jesus isn't asking here, for the disciples to innovate. They're to testify to what they'd beheld. They'd seen him. They'd seen the way he lived, the way he died. They'd seen him risen from the dead. Back in Luke 24, these disciples, they're, they're confused. What happened on Friday? They're in the throes of doubt and fear and confusion. And the resurrected Jesus comes to them and he says, touch me, see. Here he's saying, listen, what you've seen, tell others. Not unlike a witness in our day, they were to help establish facts on which others could rely. 
And these words here are Jesus' final words to the disciples, words they didn't soon forget. And what Jesus said they would do, they, they go and do. Acts 2.32, Peter stands up and says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Acts 3.15, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Acts 5.30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. I could go on with Acts 10.38 and others, but Jesus' words concerning their witness in Acts 1.8 foreshadows much of the book. Speaking of foreshadowing, what Jesus does then is he gives the, the apostles a map of the route their witness would take. Recall what they asked in verse 6. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And so Jesus' answer in verse 8 in one sense says, yes, I will restore, but maybe not how you think I would. And it says, yes, I will restore Israel, but not merely Israel. Verse 8, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Yes and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, in many ways, these geographical places function as a table of contents for the book of Acts. It's a hint. When you study this book, you actually see the inevitable progress of the gospel along the lines mentioned here in Acts 1.8. And while many rightly focus on the ends of the earth, we shouldn't dismiss the fact that Israel is included in this commission. Jesus begins by saying, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. In Luke 24, he said the same thing. Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, yes, but beginning from Jerusalem. And that's precisely what happened in the book of Acts. In Acts 1, 14 and 15, just a few verses after our text, we're told that there were about 120 believers in Jerusalem. 120. But in Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, where? In Jerusalem, about 3,000 believe. In Acts 4, uh, 4, the number of men, just the men, came to be about 5,000. And in Acts 21, we're told, in this Jerusalem city of roughly 25,000 people, many thousands of Jews believed. You know, one danger in our day in thinking about, talking about missions is just to think that it's only out there. C.T. Studd nails it. He says, the light that shines farthest shines brightest nearest home. See, the 11 weren't to go elsewhere to the exclusion of sharing the gospel, what they'd witnessed with those they lived around and had relationships with. Jesus came for Jerusalem too. Now, why emphasize that? Well, God placed that Sliger, God placed you, God placed us, God placed First Van right here, and not on accident. Yes, there are absolutely, we'll talk about it in a minute, mission fields we should go to, but also we're living right in the middle of one. And where you earn your pay tomorrow, it's one of those places. If you have kids at home, the dinner table is one of those places. And good news, you don't have to be clever. You don't have to innovate. You're just a witness. 
that emphasis on Jerusalem shouldn't be interpreted to mean that the message was intended to stay there. Or even here in Memphis, verse 8 continues, in Jerusalem and in all Judea. So that means not only in Jerusalem, but in all the land immediately surrounding them, Galilee and Judea, they were to witness as well. Now that would seem to be easy enough, but the next phrase, uh, clause begins to push, verse 8, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. Now you know the tension between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan intends to shake some of his hearers' ethnocentrism. The man who wrote the book of Acts, Luke, is the only Gentile author in the New Testament, and he also tells us a story of 10 lepers being healed in Luke 17. And how many of those return and give thanks? One. And plot twist, it's a Samaritan. Jesus knew the division, he knew the prejudice, and he said in Luke 17, was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner. These two groups have been at odds for hundreds and hundreds of years, for reasons too. Recently, the, the Samaritans built a rival temple that they dedicated to Zeus. And not long before the book of Acts was written, we know of Samaritans murdering some Jewish pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem for Passover. And when that happened, Jewish people were obviously upset. They appealed to Rome. Rome doesn't care. So what's the Jewish mob do? They go to that Samaritan village where those people were from and they burned it to the ground. These people did not like each other. So it's not a stretch to imagine Jesus telling the 11 to be witnesses in Jerusalem and, and the 11 are nodding their heads. Yeah, okay, got it. And in Judea, yes, absolutely, glad to. But when he tells them to do the same thing in Samaria, that part of town they made sure to avoid, to go to those people their friends and family talked bad about, you wonder if they balked within saying, where to go? there? That's what Jesus said, but not just to Samaria. Verse 8 continues, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The end of the earth. Now you're thinking, did Peter and John know about North America? Had they seen the Mississippi River? No, of course not. But, uh, but it does mean here that it's referring to the farthest reaches of the known inhabited world at the time. One premier mission theologian named Eckhard Schnabel, uh, done extensive work on this text. And when discussing this commission, he takes, I found this helpful, he takes the cardinal directions one by one. We're thinking about the end of the earth. He says, beginning from the west, he says the end of the earth at this time was considered to be Spain. Okay? And then the northern end of the earth, in terms of inhabited places, was a place called Scythia. So Schnabel actually footnotes ancient works that call Scythia the end of the earth. That's west, that's north. The southern end of the earth down here was Ethiopia. And finally, the eastern end of the earth went beyond India. Now Schnabel says, that's what the 11 would have considered to be the ends of the earth when Jesus spoke to them. And then he writes this, even though we have no explicit information about how the apostles understood Jesus' directive, it appears that they took it literally. Listen to this. To the north, Paul mentions the Scythians in Colossians 3. To the south, Luke mentions an Ethiopian in Acts 8. To the west, 
Paul seeks to go to Spain in the book of Romans. And to the east, we have compelling evidence that doubting Thomas went to India. See, Jesus didn't say that they might receive power. He didn't say that they might be witnesses. In both cases, he said, you will. In the words of William Carey, they expected great things from God. He said, you will receive power. And because they expected these great things from God, what did they do? They attempted great things for God. I think in this moment, maybe because there's so much going on in our world, we're tempted to dismiss the global work of God in Christ for his glory. But Christ died for men and women of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And sure, it, it can be a little tougher to get on the plane and go to them right now, but the need has not lessened. We can pray, we can give, we can support, and we can tell those in our community from those places what we've seen. And the book of Acts actually ends with this task uh, uncompleted. Many say the abrupt ending in Acts 28 leaves an implied challenge to the reader to continue what the 11 plus many others began. I mean, consider if they hadn't gone, and others reading Acts 1.8, would the message have ever made it here? And can you imagine living on this planet during the past year, maybe even during your past week, without knowing and treasuring the truth that you do about this resurrected king? And maybe you thought when I said that, that I've forgotten about the kingdom. But that's exactly what we've been talking about this whole time, because what happened when Jesus promised in Acts 1 came in Acts 2? The promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit came in fullness. And what does the Spirit do? John Stott writes this, The Spirit of God will make the rule of God a living and present reality to his people. You see, Acts 1.8 gives us the table of contents, but the book of Acts shows us God's rule, his kingdom spreading throughout the world. And Jesus had already said this. When he talked about the kingdom of God, he said, it's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Again, in part, the disciples' question about the kingdom was absolutely right. It's actually been, Ken mentioned it earlier, it's been roughly 40 days since we celebrated Easter. Today, May 16th, is actually Ascension Sunday. Now look at the next verse of Acts 1, verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. So Jesus doesn't, he doesn't correct the question of the 11 about the kingdom. In fact, I think his ascent declares, you want to see a kingdom? Watch this. Because who poured out the Spirit? Acts 2.33 tells us it's the risen, the ascended King Christ, the ruler sitting at the right hand of the Father. Jesus, King of this kingdom, he restores. So to ask again, what description of those being ruled most honors the one ruling? Or what characteristics of those submitting would most honor the one being submitted to? What what shows more power? Is it someone merely bending the knee, outward conformity alone, or someone gladly bowing their heart 
And what if the Spirit, in perfect unity with the King, took up residence in citizens' hearts so that no longer, they don't have to submit begrudgingly, but they submit because they love what their King says. And of those gladly bowing their heart, what would bring more honor to the one being bowed to? Is it people from one period of time, from one zip code, those with thousands of shared common human characteristics, or glad submission from a hundred eras, from a host of places, and from an abundance of languages? Wouldn't that people's unity, having nothing else in common, bring more honor to the one who united them? In short, what if the spirit of this ruler dwelt in the hearts of men and women from every tribe and tongue and from every era of human history? An African man in 300 AD gladly bows to this man. And in 2021, a suburban mom in Memphis does the same. See, that's a kingdom. That's a king. History bows to him. And he's the ruler you long for. Let's pray together. Father, our hearts are so complicated and we we long for things. And I pray this morning we would see the ruler, the king, the savior that our hearts were formed for. And that we wouldn't just submit begrudgingly, but that you by your spirit might help us to gladly bow in worship. Pray these things in Christ's name.